I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ramdas's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ramdas, Krishnadas, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more. The Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Welcome to Lama Suryadas's Awakening Now podcast. This podcast is an expression of our shared connection. We depend on you, our community of listeners, for support. Please go to mindpodnetwork.com/suryadas and you can either click on the donate button or bookmark the Amazon link. We get a small percentage of all of your purchases. Or you can go and sign up for a free trial with Audible.com. Your support will allow Lama Suryadas to continue to illuminate the timeless Tibetan wisdom. I find it interesting that in Tibetan Buddhism, here embodied is a truly realized enlightened master, His Holiness the 12th Gyalwang Drukpa. Well known to many of us, he's visited our center three or four occasions. Who lives in Nepal and Himalaya, such a master, such a meditation master, who the Dalai Lama sends lamas and advanced people to to learn the six yogis of Naropa, Mahamudra and all. Somebody like that would still pray that through listening and thinking, you know, reading and listening and learning and thinking and examining and reflecting, especially about these practices, these teachings we practice. And not just meditate, but try to think less. There's no room here for an anti-intellectual attitude or for just skimming the waves and not plumbing the depths Although you're free, if that's your way or style, and that's probably just one other way of looking at it. But in our tradition, there's a great emphasis on not just the balance between wisdom and compassion, truth and love, the two wings of the bodhisattva, winging their way to enlightenment or soaring in the space of freedom, but also 
theoretical and experiential learning, study and practice, as every mama would emphasize, study and practice, and in balance, not just become a walking encyclopedia, also, but study and practicing. So at least studying the practices we're doing, so we know what we're doing. Studying, listening, reading, getting oral instructions, tailor-made instructions, not just reading all the huge ancient tomes from ancient times about who begat who and cosmology and philosophy, but also for inspiration and also for techniques, for tools and techniques, tips and pointers from the masters, ancient and modern, and our own teachers and masters, meditation masters, yoga masters, life masters, whatever they are, whoever we're studying with, apprentice to, following, inspired by, etc. Study and practice goes together well. Now, I must say, most of us, however dumb we may seem to be sometimes, are probably over-educated. And we rely too much on our thinking faculty and living through our head. We have, you know, 15 or 20 years of school behind us, unlike most Himalayan yak-herding Tibetans who didn't have public schools, only monasteries, and so forth. So we, I'm not saying that we have to become academics or scholars, but I want to talk about just like even in terms of this retreat and in terms of our year-round practice. And I was thinking about, you know, my own like tips and pointers for retreats that I started talking about yesterday like one session at a time, and one day at a time, and one moment at a time, and whatever other points I brought up. That reflection and examining, thinking, reflecting upon, examining the teachings we receive, you know, whether it makes sense, whether they're true or not, or contradictory, which might not be the end of the story. Many life is contradictory. But reflecting on these things so we come to our own understanding and developing this knowledge, information, knowledge, to understanding, and then to realization through practice, and then to wisdom. It's a progress towards wisdom. Learning should be the beginning, not just being satisfied with this over-information age that we have today. Why do we have to know anything? We can Google it. We don't even have to do arithmetic. We have our, uh, whatever it's called, handheld calculator app. That's fine as far as it goes. That's not my way, but, you know, that's fine, okay, if that's your way. So with Dharma, there's everything to discover, nothing to believe in. And part of this is learning to discriminate and discern, partly through thinking and reflection. So if we're going to talk about getting the most out of this retreat, it's good to pay attention to the instructions. I'm not saying you have to memorize every word that's said or note it down. Of course, one reason we're using the bulletin board in the reading room, which is, you know, if the building's a U, this is one leg of the U, and around there on the ground, same floor as the other leg of the U, the meeting room and the Vajrayana room and the reading room. It's open day and night. So you can take away some of these pith instructions and little poems and notes, which are hard to find in books or by Googling. I'm not saying unique, I'm saying hard to find, rare and precious, which I have selected out of the, the 84,000 million billion Dharma teachings within and without Buddhism. 
So reflection is very important. And think about things, you know, just like don't swallow the food whole. Masticate it. Not just to break it into little bits, but there's things we don't know going on, like salivation and chemicals in the saliva that helps your digestion. Are you familiar with these concepts? I wasn't, but I heard about it recently in my deep studies in Reader's Digest. Similarly with Dharma practice, don't just swallow it whole. Yes, Lama, whatever you say. I mean, I like that, but I don't know if that's the best for you. Everything is subjective, Islam. Everything is empty, Islam. Everything is a dream, Islam. I mean, that's how I was till, you know, very recently, like yesterday. So I understand. That's fine. In the beginning, children, as do artists, imitate. Later, they find their own voice and grow up and think, start to think for themselves and may even find their own authentic life. Who knows? Not just their parents' life or their local life style. So reflection analysis so we can discern and discriminate deeper is very important. It's one of the seven factors of enlightenment taught by Buddha. The seven ingredients in his recipe for awakening, things like mindfulness, concentration, flexibility, balance, examination, reflection, examination, questioning, very important. Doubt even. Doubt can be a healthy key to help unlock the mysteries. Not becoming a hardened cynic or skeptic, but doubt. So reflection, very important. So I'm not going to sit here and tell you what to reflect on. What I want to talk about is how to optimize, <coughs> maximize your time here in retreat with a few of my personal tips and pointers. And reflection is the first one. I think that's very important. Reflecting on what you've heard and seeing if it's true for yourself, as Buddha exhorted in his own teaching or sermon, the Kalama Sutra, his, his speech to the Kalama tribe where he says, don't believe it just because you've heard it, don't believe it just because the elders say it or the scriptures, but check it out for yourself. And only if it turns out to be conducive to the true and the good and the beautiful, then take it up, otherwise leave it aside. So that's up to oneself. So... Let's reflect on this opportunity we have here and try to use it to the best and do things here that we can't usually do. That's why we have noble silence and noble solitude and discourage you from too much reading or social act interaction or you know, listening to the radio or getting your podcasts or whatever you do, checking your, 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 your stock quotes or seeing if the world ended today. I mean, you never know. It could end and we wouldn't know about it here. Well, we'd probably hear something from across the river, a lot of helicopters taking off, but who knows? Maybe they would be gone too. I don't know. What shall we reflect upon to make the best use of our time? Since time is life, and killing time is just deadening ourselves. Squandering time is squandering our life. So the first teaching in Tibetan Buddhism is called Precious Human Life, meaning reflect upon how special it is that we even have this opportunity to be here this week or to be here in our human bodies with all our faculties, with time and leisure and health and learning and freedom in a country where we're free to do this eccentric religion, in a Judeo-Christian country where we're allowed to do Buddhism. Has anybody ever traveled? There are other countries. They have other ways of life. Maybe you've noticed we have a lot of freedom here. We're innocent until proven guilty, unlike a country I lived in. I'm not talking about Iraq. France, 
etc. So there's a lot to think about if you a thinker, if you want to reflect upon how precious this life is and how impermanent, how we won't be here forever. We won't be in this retreat past Sunday. You know, if we make it that far, who knows? Every breath, is, I mean, who knows? Could be one's last, as the Tibetans say. One doesn't know if, what, what do they say? If, to, if, if we'll be in the next uh, moment or in the next life. There's your rebirth teaching. Somebody <laughs> asked about, there I am, referring to rebirth again. One never knows if you'll be in your next breath or your next moment or your next li- uh, day or your next life. So things are so impermanent, tenuous, contingent on many factors and changeable. So let's seize the moment and enjoy the moment and savor and appreciate our time here. That's another tip. Have a nice retreat. Have a nice day. Cliché does that sound. Smiley face retreat. Not, you know, Zen Buddhist ice trays in a, ice cubes in a tray retreat. <laughs> Sitting in sunny Southern California with no, in, a, in a room like that with no windows. It's like, why did I come to California for this? I could have stayed in my basement. <laughs> I'm not exaggerating, just exaggerating. Always maintain an open mind, an upbeat mind, a joyful mind is the Tibetan slogan from Atisha. I like to call it an open mind or an upbeat mind. Enjoy your time and savor every moment and appreciate it if you can. And reflect on what we're doing here and why, on one's intention and motivation. The Mahayana teachings say everything depends on your intention or motivation. Very important. That in action, that karma depends as much or more on intention and motivation than on the physical action itself. Are you with me? Is sticking a knife in someone's chest and they dying a bad karma necessarily? Reflect, folks. Any ideas? Anybody think, yes, it's always bad to stick a knife in someone's chest till they, and they'd have them die? What if you're a heart surgeon? You've stayed up all night doing this 12-hour life-saving operation and they die. So it's, it's bad karma. Maybe it's also good karma. You've done a good deed and your best. So it's not the best karma, but there's many levels of karma. It's not just black and white, good or bad. I shouldn't say black or white. It's not just good or bad. So reflect on intention and motivation. What are we doing here? Are we just trying to get away from the kids or the city and have vacation in the country? Or do we come here for the food? Or the hot tub? If you haven't discovered the hot tub, there's two hot tubs upstairs, I've heard. I don't know where they are. They don't, they don't want me l- lurking around there. <laughs> You know, we're here for enlightenment, or we're here to lower our blood pressure for health and reasons, or we're here because everybody's dabbling in meditation and Buddhism and Eastern spirituality this decade, or what? Clarifying intention can help deepen and strengthen our resolve. It's very important. So intention and motivation is so important. And are we just here for ourselves? Are we trying to become better people 
and help further a better world, a safer and saner world for everyone and for those to follow, for our children, grandchildren, and all the species, flora and fauna of this endangered globe. So there's a lot more we could talk about. I want to now talk a little bit about the practice and answer questions mainly about that. Today, I furthered the practice more into the sky gazing, not just the natural meditation, but how we actually practice Dzogchen meditation with eyes open. Maybe you'll notice I didn't mention closing or opening your eyes since the beginning on Saturday night. Trusting you to find your way, and some of you have meditation practices that you've come with, not necessarily Dzogchen. You maybe you do it with your eyes closed or one eye open and one eye closed. I mean, I don't know. There's all kinds of. There's at least 84,000 million dharmas. And so, based on the three naturals: natural body, breath, and a mind, pure presence, presencing. Then. Sky gazing, eyes open, ears open, everything open. It's a metaphor for openness and awareness. Doesn't matter if you're blind, deaf, dumb, in, insensitive, or whatever, or asleep. You can still do this in your dreams if you know you're dreaming. Just gazing, eye gazing, sky gazing. It's not just about the eyes, it's about openness and awareness. It's, the instruction is a metaphor for total openness and awareness, for being at ease. You know, in the army, when they say at ease, it's, it's a lot like meditation. In the beginner's meditation, we say attention is all. And now in advanced meditation, non-dual meditation, not trying to get anywhere or cultivate any specific state of mind, we say at ease. That's an easy way to understand it, at ease. What does that mean? Sergeant, how am I supposed to be at ease? What position? Should I stand up more on my right foot or my left foot? Those are not necessarily questions we need to worry about. At ease, folks. So, at ease. A natural awareness. Everything open, natural, relaxed. Not looking in, not looking out. Of course, it looks like we're looking out, but the instruction is not to look out. It's about space mingling, not sky worshiping or sky studying, cloud studying. Just open and aware, like at ease. And ears open as they are, naturally sonaring and radaring, you know, radial, oral awareness. And body sensations naturally open, not trying to build up heat or bliss or not trying not to feel or to hold the energy in our lower belly, navel chakra or anything like that in this practice. Just sky gazing, space mingling, infinite dissolving, releasing, big contraction, uh, decontraction. Usually we have our mouth closed and we're circulating a lot of prana, air through our Windmill up here. <laughs> Try opening your mouth. Breathe through your mouth. Go gaga. Drool a little. <laughs> Get out of your head. Gaga. Uh, it's hard to think. It's hard to do your tax returns when you have your mouth open like that. <laughs> That's the point. Get out of your left brain. Rational 
conceptual mind, more into the right brain, holistic, intuitive, jokey, cartoon mind. I should study the cartoon superheroes better. We need an icon of that, like Goofy or somebody with the big eyes and kind of like, I know you think I'm goofing on you. When people in Nepal asked the Tibetan master Chukyanima Rinpoche how to practice Mahamudra and Dzogchen, he said, like, like a bird on a wire, electrified. Here's my hands. Just that moment, that's the whole thing. Not what happens afterwards. <laughs> to the poor bird. Electrified by this moment of rikpa, of freshness, of incandescent presence, not of me meditating and having a good one. Ah, aren't I a great meditator? Ah, meditating, ooh, so long. Ah. Eyes as big as plates, he likes to say. So when we see pictures of Dzogchen masters, they're not sitting there like this, like those fuddy-duddy old Buddhas looking inward. Actually, if you check, Buddhas are always have their eyes open or half open. But, you know, we have this image of, of meditation, or even Buddha perhaps, of like looking in and eyes closed. Although Buddha images most have their eyes open or half-lidded. Anyway, Dzogchen masters always have their eyes wide open because it's total openness meeting life along the whole length of her gorgeous, sinuous body. Longchenpa. He's not even sitting in the good, like, juicy, you know, meditation mudra. Amitabha Buddha sitting like this, you know, in his robes, all red and shiny. Kind of like, he, he represents kind of like the British Army approach with the red, you know, the red coats are coming. In, in the right way, like meditation should be. <sighs> but then there's Longchenpa who's just like hanging out in what they call the easy comfy posture, with his hands on his knees, just like. <sighs> you look, Padmasambhava. <sighs> yes? Padmasambhava. all dressed up in drag with his nine, you know, costumes, all at once, also, because he, he was a traveling master, he didn't have a closet. <laughs> or a library, so wearing all the yanas at once, all over, symbolically, because he couldn't carry the 84,000 Dharma books with him from India. So how are we going to do that in our life? I mean, we have a Kindle now, so we can cheat. But beyond the books, how are we going to carry this on off in our life without being burdened by all that baggage? How can we wear the nine yanas, the 84,000 dharmas, the whole universe is our body, all beings is our heart, mind? That's the challenge. That's what we're talking about in Dzogchen. Oneself as Primordial Buddha, not Padmasambhava 1,500 years ago with his trident. You're going to walk around town with the trident? I don't think so. Preaching nonviolence? Not in Western Connecticut, I'll tell you.
so this is a very open and joyous Dharma, very free and natural. Authenticity, naturalness is the way. You think I'm making that up? That's a Zen saying. Of course, the weak translation says ordinary mind is the way. That's way too mental and way too ordinary. Naturalness is the way is a better translation in my view. And ordinary, yes. Blue jeans. No tuxedos needed, except on tuxedo night, then it's fine. Wear tuxedo, don't go in blue jeans just to say, fuck you to everybody. Like my friend who went to the White House in a Ben and Jerry's t-shirt. <laughs> she was invited for dinner in the White House. He goes in a Ben and Jerry's t-shirt. That's like a 60s fuck you. You want to say that to President Clinton or President Obama? I don't think so. Or Mrs. I don't think so. So the Bodhisattva fits in like the swan who glides on the lake without making any ripples, not making a big splash all the time, but having to be different. So ordinariness and naturalness is the way. And also here in retreat, you know, there's nothing to trip out on. We try to keep it basic and naked. We don't have a shop selling Tibetan antiques or clothing as some retreats do. We don't have movies and fundraising programs at night as some retreats do. And I'm not going to go through the whole list of things one can criticize. I'm just saying we try to keep it naked and straight here, stay on the practice. You haven't heard me talk about my history of the great three-year retreats and all my gurus, all the people that I know are name-dropping. We're trying to stay with the practice here. You know, I could do fire blowing. We could have a fire ceremony, stay up all night. Everybody could get high and hyperventilate, as some retreats do. But we just try to keep it really straight here so you can do your work. I like to empower you, back you, and get out of your goddamn way. Get out of your way, like with parenting, mothering, not smothering. Back them and get out of the way, especially as they grow up. Not infantilize everybody indefinitely. So keep it simple, day by day, moment by moment, session by session. And when it's appropriate, reflect on what you're doing and on your motivation and why you're here, why you're here in retreat and how to use your time and why you're here in this world and how to use your time. It doesn't mean you have to be thinking and overthinking it all the time, but there's a time for thought and there's a time for action. It's like there's a time for solitude and there's a time for social life or engagement. There's a time for play and there's a time for work. Isn't there a song by the, the, the birds? Or maybe it's Ecclesiastes. Drew, give a song. And every day Thank you. Turn, turn. He's, he's too young. There is a season. Come on, all you kumbayas. Turn. And a Time for every purpose under heaven. <laughs> we didn't have to rework those words. It's perfect ever since ancient times from Ecclesiastes. So this is the time and this is the place and this is the moment. And whatever we seek, if it ain't here, it's nowhere. And if it is here, it's everywhere. Don't get too narrow-minded or stuck anywhere. Cultivate the awareness that sticks, that fixates nowhere. Or in English, the Teflon mind. Questions, please. I had a question about compassion. It's been something that's been coming up for me a lot uh, 
these last few days, I have an image of somebody I saw in New York City popping into my mind again and again of somebody who is in really bad shape. And we talk a lot about compassion in this practice, about how the deeper we go, the more compassionate we should become. And yet I find myself... Should is a big word, but go ahead. Okay. I find myself really confused about how to act in situations like that and how to truly be compassionate because... Me too. You know, what do you do when there's 500 of them lying in the streets or, or, or you know, lying there and sleeping? 500 lepers and beggars. It do you give them all so your money or do you, do you move there and try to help them every day or what do you do? I mean, I, I stop myself from doing so much because I feel like my ego is going to be involved in that. Like I'm That's thinking, your ego. Go on with your story. Well, that I'm taking pity on them. That I'm, I'm, yes, compassion that, is not pity. Go on. Right. So, I mean, I just, I'm, I feel like I'm in a corner that I feel like I want to help this person, but I don't know where that motivation is coming from. I don't know if I'm trying to change the world instead of just accepting the way that things are. I don't know if really being compassionate means involving myself to the point where I have to you know, change the societal structure that gives rise to these types of situations in the first place, or whether I should just give a dollar and move on. So if you give a dollar, does that keep you from try working to change the societal structures? Not at all, but so then of course I have the question, well, maybe that dollar is just going to make their problem worse, that it's going to give them money so, to go and continue uh, addictive habits. Well, there may be other ways of dealing with that issue, but I don't want to get lost in that. Um, yeah, to give or not to give, that's often a question. And what do you give? Do you give outer things or inner, you know, are you there for them, which helps, or innermost, like you experience oneness with them and you you bless and radiate on them and you keep walking. We give them a dollar, bless and radiate on them and keep walking and bless and radiate on all of them and not give a dollar to everybody. You know, if you give a dollar to people in India, you'll get mobbed and they'll tear you apart. I don't mean in Bollywood. When there's a hundred beggars there, they'll follow you all day because they'll all want a dollar. And if you get $500, you'll have 5,000 beggars come the next day to find out where you're sleeping. So that's not very skillful. Also, a dollar doesn't save anybody's life, but it may cost you yours. So let's be more practical about this and not so black and white, you know, to give or not to give. How about to give and not always to give? Let's talk uh, practical. Let's, let's pretend that Evelyn is in bad shape. <laughs> <laughs> Evelyn, what would you say to this gentleman? You're a wise elder. Try to answer his question behind his question. There is no answer. You have to find it yourself within yourself. And giving or not giving is a concept. So you have to deal with that and just be yourself. Thank you. We give Evelyn a gong for that. Thank you, Evelyn. 
I think Evelyn is maybe the best shape of us all, considering the life that she's lived in her life stage, and she comes here every year. And Evelyn's still working and living in her, as I call it, big corner house in Long Island. That's not in a corner. <laughs> she's our Gilda Rodner. I know, I'm dating myself. <laughs> I hope that's helpful. So be yourself is, is deep, but it also could be a little vague if you don't know yourself. So knowing yourself goes a long way, as Buddha says, or maybe with Socrates and everybody else. You know what I'm saying? So the wisdom and the compassion come together in that way. So you don't just pity people, which implies you're above and you're looking down on them. Compassion is an empathy, like resonating with them. You feel their, like with your children. You may be up here and them down here, but you, you know... You're one with them. You feel their pain and you move to help. That's not pity. You don't pity your children. I hope. And it's something to reflect on, investigate and question and not settle for an easy answer. I don't know. Here's an easy answer. Always give something. That's not a bad easy answer just to start with. But then how much? And what? So, it's very hard to give to every panhandler when it's a mob of panhandlers. And maybe you give them your love or your benevolent smile or say God bless or you know, whatever it is you give. We give way to them and let them be and you know, you acknowledge them, you give some presence. But not you. See, she's against the concept. That's why it's your ego keeping you from giving also. But these are deep questions. You know, not just with um, panhandlers and beggars and street people. What did you say? People in bad shape. How about the people that ask you too much? You know, I don't know if, who your people are, if you have kids or relatives or mates or parents or, you know, what's too much? Do you always say yes when they ask you to drive you to the airport? Well, sometimes you say, take a taxi, take the shuttle. Here's the money, take the shuttle. Well, just take the shuttle. Because spoiling the children is also ruining them, so don't always say yes. Yes can be, no can be very affirming. But always give something. Give an affirming no. Thoughtful, affirming, appropriate, timely no. That'll be a gift. No, you can't have whatever you want this Christmas. There'll be other Christmas. Santa might bring it next year or whatever appropriate to age and stage. So I hope that's helpful. It is, and it just, I, I think your answer, Evelyn, it just reminds me that ambiguity is part of this path and that there's, you know, once you start going down one question, another one arises and, you know, this, this prayer that we have, this bodhisattva vow to go out and save all beings even though they're limitless and learn all It doesn't all say go out. <laughs> Very well. Um, beyond out and in, beyond me and beings, save all beings. Then all beings are a lot safer to begin with. Mm. Thank you. And we also have to balance different parts of our life and different times in our life. Sometimes more active, sometimes more contemplative. We go into retreat, we come out of retreat. Monks and nuns leave the world, but so they can bring something back. 
even if they stay in a cave their whole life till they die, so they can bring something back. Thus it is taught anyway. Yes, Evelyn, you have the mic. Well, I just want to uh, say one more thing. You might want to inquire where the source of these questions are coming from. And the questions arise and they dissolve. <laughs> you might want to. You know, she didn't say you should. You might want to. Or you might have That's to. That's coming from you, not from me, really. I know, but I just, it's not coming from me either. I just heard it and I passed it on. <laughs> Who's it coming from originally? Where's everything coming from, Evelyn? Give me an answer. You're an old master, Zen master. I'm a young one. You, old, old is a negative. You're a timeless elder. Ageless. <laughs> you're, a, you're a senior Zen not master. Knowing, not knowing. Where's everything coming from, senior not knowing. Zen, Zen master? Well, that's, that's a, a question that we all have to look into, really. You know, I can't answer that, you know. Okay. We won't give you a gong for that, but that's a good answer. <laughs> My hand's tired. So this is a good uh, reflections we're talking about, these existential questions. Of course, from the point of view of just practice, you know, we're not engaging these questions as much, but in a more oblique or uh, indirect way. But it all comes down to the same thing. Where are all these thoughts coming from and feelings? Not just where did the, the world and the planets come from. You know, if you believe in God, the Buddhists can ask you, where does God come from? So, origin, uh, you know, alpha and omega origin and end or destination is a big question. Or cycle and wholeness. Excuse me, beyond the mind, there is more to intuit and uh, penetrate, I'm sure. But let me just say, since our young friend over here asked a good question, and that was a very interesting mondo or kind of like a Buddhist dialogue exploration there. If we talk about natural, balanced, clear, if you bring up furthermore words like bodhisattva and bodhisattva vow, which is clearly intent on a direction, if not a solid goal, on a direction of altruism and helpfulness and relieving suffering, there's definitely a goal and a direction in that way of expressing spiritual path, then there's no contradiction between natural and that. Where did the feeling, the impulse come from to be interested in this? Would it make the Bodhisattva vow? So why suppress the impulse to help someone? If we're talking about natural and letting go means letting come and go, let the impulse to help someone arise and with a little awareness, whether it's the right time and place, helping them is perfectly it's spontaneous and natural, isn't it? If you're a parent and your child cries, it's natural for your attention to go that way. Moreover, after that, what you do of it, about it, you have more room to choose, decide, and respond. But the awareness is supposed to go to that, not stay with the candle flame. That's where wisdom and compassion come together. That is the rigpa of responsiveness. I didn't say go and run and, and do whatever they want. But the awareness is supposed to hear and see and feel and think and all the things it does through the six senses. 
and how you relate to that, respond to that, develop that, or refrain, or, or, or you know, redirect, whether you react or respond constructively, is very much up to you. And that's all very natural. I mentioned yesterday, not falling to nihilism or nothing matters, not falling to quietism or do nothing. Trying to do nothing is just one more ego strategy, like staying in bed all day. That's not doing nothing. That has its karmic implications. Doing nothing is just being carefree, spontaneous flow, not strategizing what you're doing. It's very hard to do nothing, as long as you are there, busybody us, with our mind trying to do whatever it's trying to do, with our ego trying to further its aims. Any other questions before we end? This is a very important subject, especially in Dzogchen. That's why at the end of our practice session, I tried to push a little more into the natural meditation after the meditation was over, you remember? Now don't meditate, just relax and be present. I said some of the same words I say in meditation instruction, just at ease. And you see how hard that is and what comes up. And how to deal with it is the important thing, not what comes up. Whether we react blindly or we respond intelligently, appropriately, that's up to us. That's where self-mastery comes in. Not being victim of circumstances and conditions, but master of circumstances and conditions. Not control-free. Self-mastery. Yes? Um, I, I was reflecting on this gentleman's question yesterday. He was talking about the, the pills. Um, can you describe sort of experientially what the difference between brain and mind is? Like, what are we talking about when we're talking about mind? And how does that interplay with the activities of the brain? And how do you... Are you any kind of brain doctor or neuroscientist or a sneaky, uh, knowledgeable person that I have to deal with? I do, yes. I do. <laughs> I do deal, I deal I a do lot too. with the brain. So I'm tr I, I yeah. constantly try to sort this out. Have you studied the people. new neuroscience, what I call the new neurodharma? That's the place to look. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's a very interesting new and uh, groundbreaking well, field. Yeah. Yes, I have. Um, the brain is, you know, you, need, you don't need me to sit up here and say, you know, the brain is a physical organ. Right. And what we're talking about is mind is more about consciousness and a more intangible but not impossible to evaluate or measure in some ways. Mm -hmm. um, faculty. Well, I was, I think and was... we make some other distinctions between mind and consciousness and you know, states of mind, like thought and not, no thought is still a state mm -hmm. of mind. And then mind and awareness of, of mental activities. Or in Zen, mind with a small m, ordinary conceptual thinking mind, you with me? And mind with a capital M, like Buddha mind, which is not the brain, and it's not just consciousness, it includes unconscious and subconscious and every other kind of sentient capacity. Okay, okay so let me be a little more specific. When this gentleman was talking yesterday about the experience of anxiety, mm -hmm. um, What I, I heard you address it on a, on a mind level, in terms. But what if the brain is doing something? I mean, neurochemically, something yeah. you know on right. its own. How do you? 
then you, you respond you might, to that? How do you know what territory well, for, you're in? See, I wouldn't particularly know that. You might go to a psychiatrist or somebody for that, or a Dharma teacher who's a psychiatrist. Well, how can you speak? Or a Tibetan, or a holistic doctor. Mm-hmm. But as I was, when I was talking to him, or somebody, I, I probably mentioned also, I think it was to her, not just spiritual interventions, but chemical interventions and other things. So if you're saying, can you take SSRIs if you're depressed, or do you just have to meditate it away, I'll say, sure, you can, if that, you know, is your way, makes sense to you and works for you, and you get good advice about taking antidepressants. That's not my field to prescribe or diagnose. Now you mentioned anxiety, so if you have a good diagnosis and you feel confident in that, and it does, you know, you want to deal with anxiety that way, I guess there are drugs for that, I forget, like Paxil or I know, Xanax. Yeah, I don't, it's not my field. Yeah. Xanax, right? My niece takes Xanax when she goes on airplanes. So I guess you can take that, but I don't know. All of, all of these interventions, chemical and otherwise, have implications, positive and negative and others, known and unknown side effects. Okay, well, how would you, um, how would you describe your experience of what mind is? I told you many times in the last few days, mind is sheer lucency. Mind is a placeholder for a lot of things. Mind is just a concept, there is no mind, like self. I know it's impolite to, what's your name? Joan. Okay, Dr. Joan, or whatever you are. <laughs> it's impolite to answer a question with a question, but Thank now you. that I've answered you a little, I'll just say, you asked me what is, is in mind, I'll say to you, what is self? Mind and self are very related. But not entirely. But you know what I'm saying? Self is also a placeholder for a lot of things. There's a lot of interpretations and ways of looking at it. And the higher self and the lower self that spiritual people talk about. And the, you know, adult self or the children's self or the id ego and superego, Freud's definitions, and so many others. I see your hand, Linda. Put it down, please. Thank you. We'll give you a gong for that. <laughs> Linda's a doctor, so she had to tell you, tell you. So what is mind is one of the great questions of, of Buddhism, if not of life, as well as what is self, what is God, what is soul, what is life? You know, where do we come from? These are big questions. So you want to ask again. What, 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 how can I serve you, Joan? Ask again. There's what nothing. is mind? Is that the question? What you said, mind and brain? What, now what? I'm thoroughly confused. Okay. And I think that's exactly where yeah, I need good. to be. <laughs> you don't need to know about that to get the benefit of what we're doing here this week. Yeah, Andrew. And since you're a, a thinker and a studier, look into the many, 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 many excellent writings that are there from the Mind and Life Sciences Project, from Dr. Richie Davison, and from numerous thinkers about that who have fMRIs and other research from Dr. Roger Walsh in his hundred published papers about this who's a Buddhist psychiatrist and Dharma teacher 
Even the popular book, Thoughts Without a Thinker, by psychiatrist and Buddhist teacher Mark Epstein in New York, is very illuminating for a popular book, Thoughts Without a Thinker, if you see what he's pointing at. Very illuminating for a popular book. Of course, he's a learned psychiatrist and Buddhist. Thank you. Also in the East, people don't think of mind and brain as, co as, as synonymous. Do you know where they point to when you say mind in the Eastern countries? In China, the word is sin, like heart-mind. In, in Sanskrit, it's chitta. It means consciousness. So is consciousness up here or here? Is a mind and heart separate? Are the emotions in the mind? Or they're in the brain or in the heart? There's blood in the heart. And I don't know what there is in the brain, you know, whatever synapses and all. But where are the emotions? And are they in the brain, the heart, or the body? Or all of that? So just a few thoughts. It's a good question. What is mind is a great question. So just to tell you a story and to recall, I'm getting this picture in my mind so I can't not pass it on. Yes, I will. Shut up. <laughs> The great Dzogchen master, Dingo Kinsey Rinpoche, among his many 20 volumes of writings and his infinite waterfalls of teachings and his many charitable good works around the world, even when he was old, he still had a lot of energy when he would introduce the nature of mind or who we are to um, disciples. And he, and he often did it like this. And you would go, especially if you understood Tibetan, he's saying, what is mind? That was the mudra. Kind of like hook'em horns, you know, in Texas, but he kind of shake you out of your, your um, mind. Like overawe you with his, overawe you with his Buddha mind, his rigpa, overawing our little mind. By asking you what is mind, and you, you couldn't sit there and think about all that stuff that we just talked about and think about. There was no room for that. So that's another approach, not so scientific, but quite effective. One of the games masters play. It's a good thing to reflect upon what is mind and what is the nature of mind or who we really are and the source of all experience and perceptions, outer and inner. Thank you for listening to Lama Suryadas's Awakening Now Hour. We very much appreciate your support and hope you will continue by going to mindpodnetwork.com slash suryadas and link to the donate button or go to the amazon.com link for all of your purchases. Namaste. Namaste.